Hello, and thank you for joining us on Giving Voice to Depression. I'm Bridget. And I'm Terry. More than 350 million people worldwide suffer from depression, but you do not have to have it yourself to be affected by it. Its prevalence pretty much guarantees that someone you care about battles its darkness. This podcast tries to shine some light into that darkness. We're not experts and we're not therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and are committed to encouraging healthy, healing conversations about mental illness. Episodes in this season are made possible by a grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation, which is dedicated to bettering the lives of those affected by depression. We are solely responsible for podcast content. Hello again, Bridget. Hi, Terry. Last season, we produced two episodes called How to Reach Out for Help for anyone struggling with mental health challenges. They offered really specific, concrete suggestions on how to do that, right down to the words that we can use. Mm -hmm. Whether we're in a place where you can't really even define what's wrong, but you know that you need some company to help get through it, or on the other end of the spectrum, if you're suicidal and need immediate intervention, perhaps to stay alive. If you haven't listened to those yet, we do strongly recommend that you do. September is Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month. And one way to prevent suicide is to reach out and ask for help if and when we need it. Another is reaching in, paying enough attention to the people around us to notice when they seem off or different, and then caring enough to ask if everything really is okay and really listening to the answer. And that's exactly what our next two episodes will focus on. When we interviewed Sam Dylan Finch for the previous episodes, we all acknowledged that there was another half to the equation. And despite the need, many people who are hurting hesitate to ask for help. So we have to know how to offer it. And that can be awkward. What are you supposed to say? What's okay? What's not? I mean, you want to help, but how... And Sam has detailed 11 specific ways that people have supported him through his mental health crises. We'll profile five suggestions in this episode and the balance in next week's. Here's Sam giving his voice to depression. There's just no roadmap. Like, I think there are plenty of people in my life who have wanted to be supportive and just really didn't know what that would look like. Um... And I think part of it, too, is that we just need to normalize the idea that someone can offer that support without being asked to offer it, which was like a big thing for me is I think people wait for a written invitation to support folks in their life and they don't need one. Um, There are big and small ways to intervene. Ideally, Sam reminds, all these would be early interventions. Of course, if we normalize talking about mental health, There'd be so many more opportunities to check in and lend support way before a crisis stage is reached. One of the things I really like about this list is it's not something you sat and thought, hmm, I I think I'd really appreciate if someone, you know, dot, dot, dot. These are things people actually did that you know helped. And I think that makes Mm -hmm. it very, very valuable. So let's start with number one. You said the people uh, who supported you did a lot more listening than talking. Yeah, so I think one of my like mental health pet peeves is that I think it's a very natural human instinct to try to relate to someone and try to offer like, oh, I went through that. I think that's nice in theory, but so often uh, 
all of our experiences are so varied and so different that it's not necessarily helpful to just offer support by talking on and on about some experience that may or may not be relevant or honestly just like rambling about, you know, how great life is or just offering words that don't necessarily resonate with me. Um, sometimes like the most meaningful support that I got was just someone sharing space with me and being willing to listen to what was affecting me as opposed to projecting what they assumed was happening or what they had experienced. Because oftentimes a lot of my loved ones haven't struggled with the things that I have. And I don't need them to pretend that they have. I don't even need them to have a point of reference. I just need them to keep an open mind and open heart and just be present so that they can learn about what I'm going through rather than assuming that they have all the answers from the get-go. Nice. I like that you use the phrase, follow my lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's always a great rule when it comes to mental health, that you don't actually have to have the answers for that person up front or even at any point. Uh, oftentimes we have good instincts about what we need if folks are willing to give us that room. Nice. Uh, number two is closely related. They were sure to ask what I needed instead of assuming. Yeah, I really hate the assumption component that always seems to come with mental illness. I think because stereotypes are often how people first learn about mental illness, unfortunately, um, a lot of folks think that they know what we need, uh, when in reality, it's, it's not always reflective of what we're actually wanting in that moment. So it's always better to ask. Ask? Mm, ask what, you might be thinking, especially if you've had no experience of or with mental health struggles. Well, Sam's got your back with specific, real-life, tested and depreciated suggestions, including asking, is there a particular activity we can do together that might take your mind off things? I think people often think that they have to do some kind of savior-esque gesture, like they have to do something big and extravagant, when in reality... A lot of us just need a distraction. And I think there's sometimes this goal, like I have to make this person feel better, but you don't. <laughs> I mean, that would be lovely if you could, but oftentimes we can't. When you're in the middle of some kind of mental health episode, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. You're in it for the long haul sometimes. So rather than making this impossible goal of, I have to heal this person or make them feel better. Sometimes it's enough to just like, sit down and play video games and tune out for a while like those are important coping skills sometimes coping is enough we don't always need someone to fix everything another often needed and welcomed offer is do you need help with anything around the house i would say far and away the things that have stuck out to me as being the most helpful when i'm in the middle of a crisis is when folks just offer to do dishes or offered to help me get groceries or all of the day-to-day things that I was really struggling to do on my own. Sometimes when you're in a really, really tough spot, you have to prioritize. And oftentimes it means that housework or just making certain phone calls, those things fall away really quickly. Mm-hmm. I know that you can tell when I'm struggling with my mental health oftentimes because literally everything around me in my apartment is just a disaster because it's the first thing to go. Uh, So really having folks willing to just step in and say, I can help you with that. is so simple and you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a therapist. You don't have to be some kind of researcher. 
to step in and help someone do dishes, but it does make a really big difference. I hate when my outside world looks like my inside world feels. Yeah, because it's just a constant reminder. It makes it difficult to kind of escape that headspace because it's also your external Mm -hmm. space. So they just kind of reinforce each other. Sam also suggests some very practical but important questions, like have you been eating, drinking water, talking to people, taking your meds, sleeping? The basics are so important in mental health, and I think we take them for granted. Some examples I include, could you send someone a favorite takeout meal or a reusable water bottle? Can you send them a text every morning to say hello, a text every evening to see if they've taken their medications? Could you pay for a subscription to a meditation app to help with sleep? Just anything concrete that can help address those basics uh, can make a really big difference because I'm Unfortunately, those things fall away really quickly, too, because really we're just trying to get through the day and we're not always thinking, Okay, I need four glasses of water today. Moving on to the third important way people can support us in a mental health crisis and we can support each other. Learn about your loved one's disorder. We focus on depression in this podcast, but it could be anxiety, bipolar disorder or any number of other challenges. Don't ask us to explain what's going on while it's going on. So whenever someone can take that upon themselves to say, okay, I'm going to do my best to learn about this so I can limit the amount of questions that I'm asking and maximize the most effective support that I can offer is incredibly helpful. And and it isn't, I would think, just not having to explain it to somebody. It's the respect that's being shown by trying to learn about what you're experiencing. Absolutely. It's an amazing gesture to say, you know, not only do I care about you as a person and want to support you, but I'm willing to put in the time and the effort to demonstrate to you that I'm invested in understanding your experiences and I'm invested in figuring out how I can best support you through this. The fourth suggested way to support someone who's struggling is to send a thoughtful gift that they can physically hold on to. Yeah, I think people underestimate the impact that tangible reminders can have on people. Not that a card will ever replace some of the other things on this list, but I think when I've been in like a depressive frame of mind, it's really easy for me to tell myself that no one cares. It's kind of difficult to deny that when like you're holding a necklace that your parents gave to you when you were diagnosed. When you hold on to that and you say, well, it's kind of hard to refute the fact that they actually do care because I'm holding something that they gave me to indicate that they did. And the fifth and final suggestion for this episode is a really important one, and that is to take a team approach to supporting the person. It's totally unreasonable to say that one person can support you through a mental health crisis. Like, it's just not, even if it were doable, it's not fair to that person to try to take all of that on single-handedly. And when I've had some kind of mental health crisis, Without a doubt, it has needed a team approach Um, because people have jobs and lives and emotional capacities and they can only offer so much. So what I found really helpful was when folks that were supporting me were actually in communication with each other. And how exactly do you make that happen? By communicating with the person needing help and asking them directly, who else is supporting you through this? And how can I get in touch with them if something comes up? So right from the get-go, having names and contact information, if there's a crisis, is so important. There was a point 
a couple of years ago at which um, I was suicidal and I was in a very dangerous situation. And the one person that I had reached out to was a researcher at that time and was literally in a lab and couldn't leave. It just wasn't feasible to leave. But they already had contact information for a couple of other people, uh, including my roommate, which kind of leads into the next question. Who do you live with currently? And how can I reach them if I'm concerned about your safety? So this friend knew how to get in touch with my roommate, who actually was available. So having that contact information, if there is a situation that requires some kind of immediate action, you never want to rely on one person to be the one taking that immediate action. Because one person could have their phone turned off. They could be in a research lab. Uh, they could be with family dealing with some other kind of crisis or just not prepared to help someone, not emotionally ready to do that. And just being connected in that way is just another safety net to make sure that there is support if something comes up. Another benefit of the buddy system is that the support person may need a little backup. It's like that directive you get from flight attendants to put on your oxygen mask first in an emergency. We have to be okay ourselves to be able to offer help to others. Because I will be totally honest, as someone who has supported a number of people through mental health crises, uh, it can be frustrating and scary. Uh, and you never want to take out those frustrations or fears on the person that you're trying to support. Uh, having someone that I could talk to and just be like, gosh... They called me six times today. I love them to death, but I really wish that they had more support right now. Being able to say that to someone, being able to team up and just have space to have those emotions, not only made it healthier for me, but it made me a better support to the person I was trying to help out. And one last fabulous suggestion for how to take a team approach to supporting someone. It's one, like many of Sam's suggestions, that we haven't heard of before or thought of on our own. Ask, can we compile a list of phone numbers that you can call if I'm not available to support you? And that doesn't just include friends or family. That includes hotlines, local clinics, a therapist, a psychiatrist. And so you have that point of reference so that you know that there's a list of other folks that they can reach out to. And I think in general, it's always good for someone to have three phone numbers that they know that they can call no matter what. Um, or text, because I know that calling is a whole other beast for a lot of folks. That's why we are really lucky to live in a day and age where we have something like that crisis text line that exists, so that for folks who just really can't pick up the phone, they still have options. That crisis text line in the U.S., by the way, is 741-741. And the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline here is 1-800-273-8255. Other countries have similar services. If you cannot find the number, reach out to us and we'll try to find it for you. So that's where we'll stop for this episode. We will unpack six more suggested ways to support someone who's struggling next week. And we will link to Sam's full list with each episode. Wow, I just so appreciate him and that he says there is no roadmap, which is true. But that's not the end of the kind of mental conversation, right? You still just have to do something to connect. And he gives us so many ideas and so many examples of doable steps. Yes, not knowing how or not being comfortable or feeling 
awkward doing it is, as you say, not a reason not to. We still just yeah. have to. And, and as he said, you just have to be willing to listen with an open mind and an open heart. And that really is the bottom line. If if more than that is needed, then you got to call in other people, whether that's the therapist or whether that's going to a hospital or whatever is needed. Yeah. And so many of these suggestions you know, this is a list for a mental health crisis, but it applies to so many situations. This is just about being there, even though there's no just about that. This is about being there for each other, mm-hmm. showing up and trying to help lighten the load and, I don't know, acting instead of just saying that we care. Mm-hmm. And letting somebody know they're not alone, that they're not unworthy, that they're not unlovable, especially when we know that their minds are telling them that they are because that's what depression convinces us of. Sure does. So thank you, Sam. We will be back next week with six more of your suggestions, and we know that they will help people uh, as they are already helping us. You've opened up some new uh, avenues in our brains for us to be able to support ourselves and each other. I feel like he lightened my load. You know, I can reach out without having the answers, without knowing what to do, without being an expert. And that that reminder that coping is enough sometimes you know, that, that we're off the hook for trying to make somebody else happy. Or fix them or make it right. You know, we just have to be there for them and get them through the crisis. Yep. Yep. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Bridget. Bye, Terry. We hope that these shared stories bring out a little more understanding or help people articulate their experiences of depression a little more clearly or more freely. Thanks to all, everyone who's digging deep and finding the words and finding the courage to give voice to depression. You can find all the other episodes, some resources, and a blog on our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And you can find the podcast most of the other places that you find podcasts. Just Google it, as our mom says. And please remember, if you're hurting, speak up. If someone else is hurting, listen up.